to look at the truth of God's Word as it's summarized in Lord's Day 26 from our catechism. But first, I'd like to read with you from Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 39. Now, this morning in my uh, high school catechism class, we got to talk about how Jesus came as the great high priest who was also the perfect sacrifice. And we focused on Hebrews 7 for that and how uh, Jesus came as the priest after the order of Melchizedek to fulfill all the demands of the law, all the requirements in order to usher us into the presence of God. And what Hebrews 10 does, it follows up on that by pointing out the confidence that we have now as those for whom Jesus made that sacrifice, for whom Jesus now intercedes in heaven. And so starting at verse 19, we read, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Amen. Now, Lord's Day 26 in our catechism, um, we saw last time, two weeks ago, in Lord's Day 25, the means of grace, how God uses the preaching of the word to... uh, impart faith to us and to strengthen our faith. And he also gives the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper to strengthen and deepen that faith. So Lord's Days 26 and 27 talk about baptism. What is it? What's its significance? How does holy baptism remind and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross benefits you personally in this way? Christ instituted this outward washing 
And with it promised that as surely as water washes the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and his spirit wash away my soul's impurity, that is, all my sins. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means that God, by grace, has forgiven our sins because of Christ's blood poured out for us on his sacrifice, or in his sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with Christ's spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed and sanctified us to be members of Christ, so that more and more we die to sin and live holy and blameless lives. Where does Christ promise that we are washed with his blood and spirit as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism, where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And whoever believes and is baptized will be saved but whoever does not believe will be condemned. This promise is repeated when Scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. Amen. Brothers and sisters, beloved of our Lord, years ago, um, I was part of an online discussion group uh, really comprising folks who identified as Reformed, confessionally reformed, Dutch reformed. Um, we talked via email of all kinds of issues respecting the church, theological issues, cultural issues, all that kind of stuff. Um, and once we had an opportunity to visit over dinner, and at one point, and it, of course it wasn't the whole group, but it was about 15 or 16 of us as I recall, and at one point in the midst of dinner, talk turned to sermons. How long is too long? What are the criteria by which to judge whether a sermon was good or not so good? What about relevance? How do you capture interest? How do you make sure that the sermon means something and is is significant for that congregation? And the one thing that really struck me about that conversation, which I remember now, a decade later, was the desire among so many of those present for images. Remember, these were folks who regarded themselves as Reformed. And these Reformed folks spoke about, well, as they spoke about sermons, several of them said that images, whether pictures or charts and graphs or artwork projected on the wall, such images increase their interest in a sermon and make it seem more relevant to them. I remember one person who was, in fact, the wife of a minister who said, if a preacher has PowerPoints with words on them, that helps. If they have PowerPoints that have pictures, even better. And if they have a short video clip or a short drama, that really brings it home to me. You know what struck me about the conversation? I was just kind of in the background watching in awe. No one, until I did it, questioned whether images were legitimate. No one questioned whether it was okay to use artwork and video clips and PowerPoints. No one raised the issue that it's nowhere commanded in Scripture. It was simply assumed that in order to gain or keep the attention of the congregation... Images are necessary because people don't just learn orally, they learn visually. 
And you know, they were right. Not about using images in sermons. They were entirely wrong on that because God hasn't commanded that. But they were right that we learn visually as well as orally. But here's the thing. God knows that. He made us that way. And so not only does he have the ability to use the spoken word to bring home the gospel to us and to use that to impart faith to our hearts. But more than that, he has provided visual aids so that we can learn also visually about the essence of the gospel. Now, he didn't, to that end, give us PowerPoints. He didn't, to that end, give us video clips or charts and graphs. He didn't give us a whole video library. He gave us two. He gave us baptism. He gave us the Lord's Supper. I think because he knows how easily distracted we are and how powerful images are. He gave the two images which would demonstrate to us the heart of the gospel and the heart of the Christian life so that we would not be distracted by all the other stuff that means less, by all the other stuff that can easily distract us. He gave us the two sacraments that focus us on that which needs to stand at the heart of our faith, at the heart of our identity, at the heart of our life. And the first of them is baptism. Baptism is an image. It's an object lesson about the entrance into the covenant and all the promises that come to those who enter the covenant. And the first lesson that we see in our catechism about baptism concerns its nature and its perfection as a visual aid. Before Jesus came, worship was filled with images. Matter of fact, I think imagery was probably more prominent than preaching. There were... There were sacrifices and feasts and temple furnishings and rites and rituals and incense and smoke and blood, lots of blood. Imagery abounded, but after Jesus, after he came and completed the sacrifice that we needed and fulfilled all of the images that Israel had seen for so many millennia, the images went away. They were fulfilled. And two remained, which demonstrate what he did. Baptism comforts God's people with the perfect visual aid of the promises of the gospel, the promises that stand right at the heart of who we now are. That's what we consider this evening. Baptism comforts God's people, first of all, with an image of personal cleansing, really a personal assurance of cleansing. It should be clear to us by this time through our study of God's Word as this catechism summarizes it, that we need to be cleansed. Every one of us starts out from the word go, from the womb, sinful, defiled, unworthy in the sight of God. We, oh, we need to wrestle with Isaiah 6, don't we? Isaiah 6, here is Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah... He was the court preacher, man. He was well-educated, well-spoken, well-respected. This was the domine of domines. 
And all of a sudden, God transports him into the throne room of God himself, and he is utterly and completely undone. Woe is me, he cries out. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I am from a people of unclean lips, and I have seen the Lord of glory. He is utterly undone, as every one of us should be. We are all people of unclean lips and hands and hearts and minds and and all. And we come into the presence of the Holy God. If we come into the presence of God with that sin clinging to us, we are undone. Every one of us desperately needs cleansing. And that's the first thing that baptism shows us. Here's this baby. Oh, babies, innocent, innocent, sweet, sinful. Every one of them. What's their first thought? I'm cold, I'm hungry, I'm dirty, fix me. That's the way we all start. Yes, they're sweet. Yes, they're adorable. That's so we don't, you know, kill them. You know, I just, I struck by that. Last weekend, I know I've talked about that too much, but it's been a while since I held one of mine. And they're so sweet and so adorable, but still sinful. And so from the very start, to those who receive the promises of the covenant, and that comes to believers and your seed, your offspring, God gives us this imagery of what? A bath. We pour water on them. What does that water, kids, what does that water do? When you take a baby and you dump water on them, what do you think? i got to clean them. I'm cleaning off the dirt, all the spit up, maybe some, you know, less pleasant stuff. We're going to wash them off, make them clean, mm, make them smell good. That's what baptism shows us, is that bath. And God says to us, you're filthy, but Christ will cleanse you. Just as your body needs to be washed with pure water, so your soul needs to be washed with the blood of Christ to cleanse it. That's the imagery there. God knows that we will struggle with doubts. The more it's ironic, you know, it's those who are outside of Christ who can say, you know, I think most people are good. I think most people are good. Yeah, you know, you give them the right opportunities, they'll do good. No, they won't. And the more we dig into God's word and the more we allow it to illuminate our lives, the more we see that people are the antithesis of good. People are not at all good and we are not at all good. And the more we study that word, ironically, the closer we come to the Lord, the more we see that we're unworthy to come to the Lord in and of ourselves. And so we need that assurance. Our text in Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. But it doesn't say, because you've done well. Because you've cleansed yourself. No. Because you have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. He cleanses us. He purifies us. That's what baptism promises. I will cleanse you of your defilement. I will make you worthy to enter my presence. 
through that one high priest and the sacrifice that he offered. That, that baptism, it tells you this is the promise that came to you just as surely as you were wet, just as surely as your hair got soaked, just as surely as you startled when that water fell upon your forehead. So surely the promise comes to you. And he who promised, verse 23, is faithful. So trust him. Believe him. Believe that what he showed you in baptism, in that beautiful visual aid, is true for you. That he has cleansed you of your defilement. That you don't have to stand there like Isaiah and say, woe is me. Instead, you can say, what an amazing God who has cleansed me and welcomed me into his presence. What an amazing Savior who has torn apart that curtain and ushered me into the very throne room of my God who is now my Father. That's the promise. That's the assurance. And it comes to every one of us who has received that symbol, that sacrament by faith. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Were you baptized? Did the water run down your head and neck? Then the promise comes to you. And the calling to believe that promise, to be confident in that promise. Understand that baptism is not a small thing and it's not only for children. God called us to make disciples of every nation. Baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. See, our Savior knows how weak we are, how quick we are to waver in our trust. So the first tool of discipleship he gives us is this sign and seal that assures us the promise is for you the cleansing is for you believe the one who promised for he's faithful and it's not just for cleansing from sin it's also forgiveness question 70 asks what does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit To be washed with Christ's blood means that God, by grace, has forgiven our sins because of Christ's blood poured out for us in His sacrifice on the cross. We don't just need to be cleansed, we need to be forgiven. Sin deserves to be punished. I think we all get that deep down. You go to a restaurant, you see a kid being an absolute brat. He's really openly disobeying. His parents try to settle him down. He talks back to him. He's behaving so badly that people actually finish up quickly so they can leave. You want that child to get a spanking. Not because you hate him. You don't even know him. But there's something in us that cries out for justice. You see the disrespect he shows to his parents, the disrespect he shows to the people around him, and you want him to receive a punishment. Or we look in the news... We think about the events in Ukraine. Now, that's a complex situation. I know that. Ukrainian society has not been morally upright. Their president has advocated for lots of morally indefensible things. But still, we see a sovereign nation without justification attacking another sovereign nation, displacing multitudes of people, and we want justice, don't we? We want the leader of that invading nation brought to to account for his sins. We know that sin deserves to be punished. And baptism shows us that's what Jesus did for us. He took what we deserved. He paid the debt that we owed. 
And that's what we see in baptism. That water represents Jesus' blood poured out as a punishment for sin. Always forgiveness comes through the shedding of blood, through the death of the one who bears sin. Jesus bore our sin. His blood poured out on the cross in the midst of three hours of darkness symbolizing God rejecting him until he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He asked the question for the benefit of those present. He knew the answer. It was because he bore our sin, our guilt. And because he paid the whole price, we can be forgiven. That water is poured out on our heads, symbolic of the blood that he shed to forgive our sins. And how, how can I know that he did it for me? How can I know that he, he died on the cross for my sins? Because the water came upon me. And why? Mere happenstance? Or because I was so bright that I asked for it? No. Most of us are baptized as children. What a beautiful sign. I didn't even know to ask. But God in his mercy commanded that one to be baptized. That one to receive the sign. What we're called to do is believe him. To believe the words of Titus 3. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we might be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's what baptism shows us. It's not what you did, what you accomplished, what you earned. No, it's what he did, which has been poured out upon you. So that you could be forgiven. So that you could know that justice has been paid for me. For us. And there's still more to that glorious visual aid. Because Jesus didn't stop with paying our debt and cleansing us from our filth. He didn't simply remove sin's consequence and then put us back on square one and say don't mess it up this time. Nor did he leave us enmeshed and admired in our corruption and our enslavement to sin. No. Jesus lived the life that would make us righteous before God. He died the death that would take away our debt. And then He promised the Holy Spirit who now works to purify us. And that's the third thing baptism shows us. A purifying image of sanctification. Listen again to the second half of question 70. What does it mean to be washed by Christ's blood and spirit? We heard that Being washed with Christ's blood means that he paid the debt for our sin. But to be washed with Christ's spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed and sanctified us to be members of Christ so that more and more we die to sin and live holy and blameless lives. That's the washing which sanctifies us, which makes us holy. Hebrews 10 verse 22, we heard it say, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That's Jesus purifying us. And our bodies washed with pure water. Our bodies, that refers to how we act, how we now live. And Hebrews 10 then goes on to show that 
that the life of those who've been washed by the blood of Jesus ought to be different. That's why verses 24 and 25 urge us to, to meet together and encourage one another to love and good works. Because we who are identified by Christ, we who've been cleansed, we ought not to be like the rest of the world. Because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we ought to increasingly reveal the character of Christ. That means no longer are we to be driven by what I want, what I desire, what pleases me, but rather by how can I honor God, how can I glorify the Lord, how can I bless the people around me. Our marriages ought not to be characterized by strife as the husband fights for what he wants and the wife fights for what she wants and they get annoyed at one another. No, but rather by dying to one another or to to oneself for the sake of one another. The husband putting himself last so that he can bless and honor his wife. The wife putting herself last so that she can honor and serve her husband. That's radically different than what the world sees, what the world lives for. Verses 26 and 27 warn us, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire. If we keep on sinning, if we don't, that is, we don't strive against our sin, we're going to continue sinning. But we shouldn't be identified by it. We shouldn't give in to it. We shouldn't allow sin to reign over us without a fight. And if the Holy Spirit's in us, then we will fight. We'll struggle to repent against that sin. We'll fight to get rid of that sin. And we'll long for a holiness that we can only begin to attain in this life, but that we do begin to attain. So we're urged in verse 36, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. When you have acted by the Spirit of God, by the power of the Spirit, when you have shown your love for Christ by obeying His commands, then by the faith that your life reveals, you shall receive the reward. In other words, what we do, how we live matters. And baptism shows us God has promised the power to live in a way that's pleasing to Him. It's not a new promise, by the way. Back in Ezekiel 36... The Lord assured His people not only would He cleanse their hearts from the impurity of sin, but also I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and be careful to obey My rules. All the way back in the time of the exile, He was promising that to His people. And that's what baptism displays to us. I have promised you the power of the Holy Spirit so that more and more you'll fight against sin, so that more and more you will get rid of those chains and shackles that once bound you, so that more and more people will see in you the image of your Savior into whom you were baptized. Again, this is an image given to comfort us with what it teaches and how it assures us. By your baptism... You can see that your corrupt nature has been washed away and that God has poured out upon you. Even as that water was poured upon your head, He has poured out upon you His Holy Spirit. Now we're called to believe it. 
The testimony of that sacrament doesn't come from men. It comes from God and we're called to believe Him. To believe that just as real as that water is, that's how real the power of His Spirit is. And that just as that water was placed on me, God will give me the power of His Spirit to live a new life. To demonstrate my faith. Folks, that's powerful. Children, understand, it's not just for when you were baptized at an age that you can't even remember. Every time you see that sacrament, that's what you need to remember. That's how God promised me that He would cleanse me of my dirtiness. That's how God promised me that He would pay the debt for my sin. That's how God promised me that He would pour out His Spirit so I could live a new life. But don't believe that because I said it or because the catechism said it. Our understanding of the sacraments, our belief about God and about His church, our faith must not rest on the sentiments of men both either now or 500 years ago. If we believe it, we must believe it because God said it. If we trust it and follow it, we must do so because we know that we're trusting and following God. And if what I say or what the catechism says is not in line with Scripture, then we dare not believe it. But praise God, that is what the Bible says. Question 71 of our catechism says, Where does Christ promise all these things? And then immediately it quotes from Matthew 28 and Mark 16 and Titus 3 and Acts 22. Understand the importance of what the catechism does there. First it shows us that the command to baptize was from Jesus. Matthew 28. Make disciples of all the nations. Certainly teach them to obey all that I've commanded. But first, baptize them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Give them that visible assurance that this is my promise and this is how trustworthy it is. And then the Catechism cites Mark 16, showing us the promise that is attached to baptism and the obligation it brings. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Notice how broad that is. Whoever, man or woman, young or old, Jew or Gentile, Dutch or Scottish, doesn't matter. Whoever is baptized or believes and is baptized will be saved. But notice the warning. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. Doesn't matter if you were baptized, if you don't believe, if you don't have faith, if you don't trust the one who gave the sign. There's no hope in that. It won't work automatically God calls us to believe Him. But if you do believe what God has promised in your baptism, then God has assured you He will forgive you, He will cleanse you. The promise is repeated when Scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sin. Titus 3, Acts 22, those passages reveal that this imagery of baptism is imagery that was designed and bestowed by God Himself. An imagery of cleansing, an imagery of forgiveness, an imagery of new life and power. That's biblical imagery given by God to teach and to assure us. So folks, please understand that this imagery that's bound up in the sacrament. It is a perfect representation of Scripture. Perfect because God gave it. 
Its function is to teach us. Every time we see it, this is what God promised. This is what we can be confident of. And to assure us every time we see it, that's the promise he gave to me. The assurance I can have. Now, our calling, brothers and sisters, because God said it, and because God showed it, we need to believe it and live in the light of it. And if we do, it changes everything. It changes who we are. It changes what we can do. It changes what we desire to do. It changes our everlasting hope. May God use your baptism to utterly transform your view of yourself, your life, your all, and to root you firmly in the gospel of Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have given us this visual aid, this image of our salvation in baptism. And I pray that you would use it to strengthen, to bless, to encourage, and to empower your people so that more and more we might live as those who have been saved and cleansed and sanctified by Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.